Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We're presented by CLNS Media. Oh boy, Cole. It is 1240 here in Chicago. I've published 16,000 words tonight. <laughs> I am eating like these trolley sour bright crawlers. Uh, I also have a box of Swedish fish for midway through the podcast because uh, I figure that a sugar high is what I need right now. <laughs> and we're going to podcast about the lottery because what the fuck just happened? Um, just your immediate reaction to what you saw as the lottery is unfolding and not only the Lakers move up, but then Memphis and New Orleans moves up and then the Knicks end up staying in the top four and just madness ensues. I think my initial thought was just some of these teams I actually would like Zion on. Like I, I like the New Orleans fit with Griffin there now. Uh, I loved his fit next to Jaron Jackson just from a scheme standpoint on Memphis. So it was kind of nice to have some of the teams at the top that I think Zion's going to fit really well on. Obviously, any team at one's going to take him. And it was also kind of interesting just because New York and L.A., two potential Anthony Davis destinations, were in the top four and the top five. So, <laughs> I mean, from an entertainment standpoint, like we got, we kind of got both avenues. We got like maybe some potential trades, even though that's not going to happen now. But at the time, it kind of seemed like, oh, we're giving the Knicks and the Lakers better firepower for this move. And we also have some potentially good fits that I like Zion on. Yeah, so the Pelicans obviously win the Zion Williamson sweepstakes, right? Let's just talk about Zion first. I mean, the Pelicans had a great night even beyond that for reasons that you just said. Like the Pelicans get Zion and they have all of Boston keeping the Memphis pick. New York staying in the top three and the Lakers moving up to four, all things that are incredibly valuable to them happen. Like I did the odds based off of like the actual implied odds of the lottery and the chances of that happening were 0.04% basically. This is, this is where we're at with the New Orleans Pelicans at this stage. It's unbelievable how lucky David Griffin just got as he will undertake the immense task now of likely having to trade Anthony Davis, likely rebuilding this entire roster other than maybe Drew Holiday and getting this marketable, incredible, unbelievable player in Zion Williamson that, you know, for the second time in eight years, basically, the Pelicans get the best player to come through the NBA draft system in a decade. It's kind of incredible. Or in a half decade, I guess, in this case. It just goes to show that while so many different ingredients are absolutely imperative to team building, luck is the number one driver. You just have to get breaks. And the Pelicans got a huge break tonight. All the other things you said about these other teams keeping their pick, that was big. But the chance to get a legitimate difference maker which there aren't that many of in the nba there's tiers of guys and how good they are i think zion has the potential to be an absolute difference maker like a generational kind of player so just getting that guy is worth everything else you could possibly aggregate together is not worth what zion could be worth to them so i just think they got a huge break and david griffin would tell you straight up they got incredibly lucky in that luck is absolutely imperative to the success of teams moving forward yeah, luck is it is what it is, man. Like sometimes you get lucky, sometimes you don't. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't even know what to say right now. Like I, I it's just like kind of incredible. Uh, I, I was just sitting there, like jaw on the floor, thought it was <laughs> unbelievable that this is what happened. I, I could not even begin to say that this is what happened. Um, in regard to how you would build if you are the New Orleans Pelicans from here. Anthony Davis, according to Sham Sharanya over at The Athletic with me, says that Anthony Davis still wants to be traded. Drew Holiday is still uh, your point guard, lead guard, two guard, whatever the fuck you want to call him. He's really good. Um, still your guard of the future, basically. You have Zion. What are we What are we looking for in an Anthony Davis trade? What are we building now uh, around Zion, basically, as your uh, like tier one marketable superstar? Yeah, I'm definitely tailoring it to Zion's window. I want guys who align with that age range. Getting like a 28-year-old guy is great, and that makes you better right away. But I thought that was what a lot of the problems were with the previous Pelicans regime and trying to get too quickly, build too quickly around Davis and kind of short-circuit some steps. I would look at this as you have one of the maybe two or three most valuable commodities in the NBA right now, and I'm trying to optimize him. So on a Davis trade... On a potential Drew Holiday trade, I would look to move those guys for players in Zion Williamson's age range. 
That's how I would approach it. But I'm not just going to trade them to trade them. They're going to have to be good deals. Yes, I agree with you. Um, so now I think we have like the semblances of a few offers here for Anthony Davis, right? Like we have a pretty good idea that the Knicks offer is going to be number three. So basically like RJ Barrett, Kevin Knox, Dennis Smith, Frank Nielakina, Mitchell Robinson, right? Like that, that's, that's the Knicks offer. The Lakers offer is number four, uh, Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, Kyle Kuzma, Josh Hart, like something with those pieces, right? The Celtics, I, I think it remains to be seen if the Celtics will get involved in this, given the Kyrie Irving of it all. Uh, if they end up losing Kyrie Irving, do they decide we want to go all in on Anthony Davis? I probably wouldn't if I was them, but you know, we'll see if they decide to make ancillary moves around that. I mean, what offer stands out to you right now on the market for Anthony Davis? I think Boston's offer is the most interesting if they include Tatum and I'm a little lower on Tatum than maybe consensus is right now. I still think he's going to be really, really good, but I still think he's the best commodity you're getting in a realistic Anthony Davis package with those teams. I'm not really enamored with the Knicks offer, to be honest. The Lakers, I would probably take over the Knicks at this juncture, but it's not so incredible that I'm just going to knock down the doors on the night of the draft saying we have to do this. I think what the Pelicans can do now is they get a little bit more wiggle room because they already have the successor to Davis now. So now you just have to, I think, just look around, gauge the best market, gauge the best offer. And I'm absolutely going to wait for Boston and how it plays out with them with Kyrie because I want Tatum. That's what I'm going for right now. So let's assume Boston doesn't offer Tatum because, again, like if you're Boston and you're losing Kyrie Irving and you still have Al Horford on the roster, you still have Gordon Hayward on the roster, uh, and we shouldn't really feel great about where Gordon Hayward's game is now. Like, I still struggle, I guess, to try and figure out what their incentive is to trade for Anthony Davis and risk him departing after one year. Yeah, and that all comes down to cost for me. Like, I still think they would they would roll the dice and see if they could get him to stay, but it's not going to come up the cost of Tatum likely in that situation. You'd probably get a Jalen Brown, maybe Marcus Smart with picks. I don't know how deep they're willing to reach into their asset chest to do that. So, so there's so a lot of moving parts. Let's say it's let's say it's Jalen Brown. Let's say it's Marcus Smart, um, Shimmy Ojale, maybe like that's at least like a semi interesting rotational young player down the road. Uh, let's say it's those three: the Memphis pick that is either 2020 or 2021, number 14 this year, and number 20 this year. So three first rounders: uh, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, and Ojale. Is that better than New York or uh, Los Angeles? Uh, I still think I would take LA's offer in that setting, but it's really close. I don't think any of these are really like moving the needle substantially, which right. is an issue. And this is this is why it's interesting to talk about with you because we're kind of sussing this out, and maybe the Pelicans don't get the offers they think they will. I know right now the Pelicans are saying all the right things, like they want to see if they can get Davis to buy into this ecosystem. There's no reason to come out and say we're going to trade Drew Holiday, we're going to trade Anthony Davis because they might not. I think what's best for them is keeping their options open, but I'm not just dealing these guys just to deal them. I think if you have a deal like that on draft night, I probably wait it out and see if something better comes. Yeah. And the good thing is they have an incredibly competent front office executive and David Griffin. Now, uh, Griff is just as smart as it gets with this stuff. He's an incredibly good negotiator. I would expect that he's going to get the best offer. I really would. Um, I think they're going to come away looking very strong. The team that I really wish could get involved is Portland. I just don't see the assets whatsoever. Like I, I, like Philadelphia, I guess, is another team that we like could talk about theoretically. Uh, if they wanted to go like Twin Towers with Embiid and Davis and you know, re-sign Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris and then maybe move Ben Simmons for Anthony Davis. Like Ben Simmons certainly moves the needle for New Orleans, yeah. I think. But if I'm Philly, I probably don't want to go down that road, do you? Yeah, it's really tough. You gotta you gotta have intel how likely Anthony Davis would be to stay. Does he have relationships with these pre-existing guys on the team? How strong is that? So you're definitely playing with fire a little bit there because of Simmons, you of course have restricted rights. So you risk a lot in that situation. I think Simmons, if we're talking about Simmons being available, I think that's something that the Pelicans absolutely have to look at for sure. And that might actually be the strongest offer to me based on all these realistic offers. Like, would I rather have Simmons or all the Lakers guys? I could make a pretty convincing argument for Simmons. It just kind of goes down to what David Griffin wants. But that kind of deal, I think there's merit to it. I think you can talk yourself into, if you're Philadelphia, you can talk yourself into making that 
plunge, even though you, you probably ideally have to know a lot more about the context and Anthony Davis, his relationships with the players on the team and all of that. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, let's move on. Let's kind of move to the Lakers, I guess, now. Do you think the Lakers or the Knicks moving up is more interesting? Or the Knicks moving down, I guess, theoretically. Although, uh, what, they had basically the same odds to stay one, two, or three the whole way. So, um, Lakers or Knicks, where do you want to go? We can go Lakers. I think that them coming up to four just increases their firepower for a deal, even though we kind of think that both Moran, I think Moran's going to go two to Memphis and then yeah. three, I would bet on RJ, but I'm not a hundred percent sold. That's going to be the pick, but that would be my bet for sure. So, so for th- how there was the- a report that the Knicks like Cam Reddish. Um, yes. I can't imagine taking Cam over RJ Barrett. I think that is a bad idea waiting to happen. Uh, where do you fall on that? I would take RJ, but I'm not completely convinced that it's impossible that a team would like Cam over RJ and even talk themselves into that on draft night. We've seen crazier things. But yeah, I would be somewhat surprised if Cam went ahead of RJ in the draft. I mean, like, I guess theoretically, Jarrett Culver could be in the mix. DeAndre Hunter could be in the mix. But like, RJ just has a higher ceiling than those guys to me at the end of the day. Like, if I'm the Knicks, I'm probably just betting on RJ and betting on his ceiling at number three. If I'm the Knicks, I'm probably just betting on trade value and who's going to keep that. And RJ is the biggest name of that group. So that's how I would kind of spin it as it's like, I don't think there's any real value at drafting this spot. So I want to try to maximize whatever trade value I can accrue and get a similarly tiered player. It's it's pretty hard to make the case that like Cam Reddish is a tier ahead of RJ, for example, even if you had that position, I think that's a pretty tough sell. So I I think just taking the bigger name player, someone you you think is going to retain value, especially in the destination market. I think that's the way to approach it for the Knicks. Yeah. And like RJ's mentality works really well in New York. I think like we talk about, Oh, the, you know, the media melting pot that is New York or whatever the hell it's called. I mean, I'm so tired. It's not a melting pot, is it? <laughs> um, like, we talk about that. We talk about how tough it is because the media is, like, just constantly around you in New York. I mean, RJ is not going to give a shit about that, man. That dude's just going to go out and he's going to work his ass off. He's going to be uh, someone who wants to take the big shot at the end of games. Like, he's just got that mentality that I think uh, New Yorkers will gravitate toward if there's even a modicum of success. Like we saw it this year with Alonzo Trier. Alonzo Trier is like kind of worse RJ Barrett. They have that like same killer mentality. They have that same like drive and energy and tireless work ethic to where they want to be great. Um, Can also kind of great on teammates a little bit. Um, But I think that we saw the fan base gravitated toward Alonzo. I think it's going to even happen to a greater extent with RJ. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, th- I think that's probably factors that the Knicks will look at in the evaluation process. I'm just kind of fascinated the most, again, by potential trades in this draft. I'm not sure if we're going to get any, just because I think a lot of teams might just view that non-Zion tier as pretty flat, you know, at least for a couple guys, so maybe three to four guys, even though there seems to be a movement towards Jaw 2 and then RJ3 on people's boards. It's just kind of fascinating because you have some teams that need point guards, like Phoenix at 6, Chicago at 7. You know, would they be looking to potentially move up for a Moran? at two or something like that or maybe garland that's another guy who i think is going to factor in pretty heavily i think espn had him mocked to the lakers i think his outcome range is probably like lakers to chicago at seven maybe there's a chance he drops to like nine or so because atlanta's not going to take garland with trey young already there so for me it's most compelling is are these teams going to move at all after one i would very be very shocked if one moved but i could see two three four five six those kinds of ranges people could trade out they could trade up it's just going to be kind of fascinating to monitor i would almost guarantee you we see some sort of move um maybe it happens like after the draft as well like with new york signing Kyrie and kevin durant and then moving you know rj whoever at number three somewhere else like rerouting him uh i mean rob polink has already said that number four is a trade asset for the lakers uh yeah like you said phoenix is going to be in the market for a point guard i think they're fine at six like they can just stay at six and probably get a point guard cleveland i don't think is going to take darius garland over colin sexton because a uh they're they have colin and they like colin and b i don't think they're going to want to deal with clutch sports the lakers at four Depends on what they think of Lonzo Ball. Depends on what they want to do with the pick. Again, I think the Lakers are going to move out. So Phoenix probably has to try and figure out who the Lakers are going to move out with. Do they need to move up to number four to get their point guard that they want above all? Um, I would bet you we see movement, though. There's just there are too many balls in the air for there not to be something. I don't know who it's going to be. Uh, 
I do think that we see something happen. I agree. And it's just figuring out who it's going to be is the hard part. Just because we have the players of the free agents and destination markets of New York and L.A. Some smaller market teams like Memphis. I don't I don't think I'd bet on them moving. I think that they are probably the best bet to stay where they are of these teams. But Cleveland, Phoenix, Chicago, I could see moving around a little bit. Atlanta, they have eight and ten. They could look to even package up. I wouldn't necessarily advise that. But I, I think you could see them being interested. Maybe that you in the past, they've been linked to Reddish. There's a chance he could fall to eight as it is. But if they moved up to four, for example, that wouldn't shock me either. So the coolest thing about all of this is that on some level, just about all of these teams are linked to significant, sizable, like paradigm shifting for their organization trades. New Orleans obviously has to deal with the Anthony Davis situation. Memphis, while they, I don't think they moved to. They're dealing with the Mike Conley situation. They probably should move Mike Conley this summer. New York, obviously in talks for Anthony Davis, uh, in talks for Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, and free agency. And if that happens, they probably look to be involved in further trade discussions, even if they don't get Anthony Davis. The Lakers obviously want to get another star. Cleveland's really the only one that doesn't fit this, but like Phoenix wants to get older. Uh, James Jones has already said like he wants to get older and to get more vets in the team. Chicago... Chicago, I guess, doesn't really fit this either because they're asleep at the wheel. But Atlanta, uh, they could easily move up and down and maneuver around the board because they have five picks. Washington has to deal with Bradley Beal. Like, these teams in the top ten, it's just going to be so damn interesting just to see what happens here. Like, there is so much potential for movement throughout the NBA this summer that it just affects everything at the top of the board. It absolutely does. And I'm just, I'm more curious on how much teams actually value these picks, like from like the two to eight range. Are these valued picks? Is it, are they going to be coveted? Or is it more like teams that have them want to get out of it? They want these star players. A lot of the organizations, like the Lakers and the Knicks, they obviously want free agents. So that impacts this as well. But I'm just curious more so on how much these picks are valued. I feel like last year's drafts, you know, in the top five, top six, top seven, those were really highly valued picks where teams wanted to stay. I think this year you're going to see more more of an emphasis, especially after the top three, to maybe move around because, again, all the prospects for maybe a lot of teams flatten out and the value of those picks isn't high. Okay, so where do we want to go next? Do we want to talk about the Knicks? We haven't really talked about them yet. I guess, yeah, let's like, do it. We, we kind of did, like, with the, just like talking about RJ and talking about you know, the idea of their free agency. But, like, so I think that everyone kind of melted down when the Knicks lost Zion. So, the Knicks end up at number three. They had about a 40% chance to end up in the top three. They had a 47% chance to end up at five. Like, this actually was a positive outcome for the Knicks. I know that there's disappointment there, but based off of the new lottery odds, this was a positive outcome. People are talking about the Cavaliers. Uh, you know, the Cavaliers fell three spots. They actually ended up in the most likely spot they were going to end up with this in this lottery. Same with Phoenix at number six. They ended up in the most likely spot with a 26% chance to end up at number six uh, that they were likely to end up with. So, I mean, what do we think of, I said, I know we said, we were, I said we were going to talk about the Knicks, but like, what do we think in general of the lottery reform after this? Like, where are we at on how we feel about uh, the way tonight went and if it actually is doing the job that it is supposed to do? I think it definitely is. I mean, you see the top two teams moved up six places and that's what, the NBA is trying to create is a situation where there isn't outright tanking. If you're at the way bottom, you're not rewarding these teams for, you know, not competing on nights at times, even though players still compete for the most part. But I, I think it's, a, it's accomplishing what they want it to. It's a question of, do you agree with the changes as far as making it even more luck based and removing some of these teams from the ability to get these players. But it's just kind of interesting that the top two teams are smaller markets with New Orleans and Memphis who aren't going to have a chance to get players in theory of this caliber, definitely New Orleans, uh, of a Zion Williamson, and you get the big market teams that slip a little bit. Well, Lakers came up, but they didn't get quite high enough to get that premier probable star. So that's kind of interesting, too. I think like what the league is envisioning for it moving forward as far as you want it more egalitarian, you want it more to be concentralized around 
just the middle of the pack. You want enough good teams and no really bad teams that tonight was a, a positive step in the direction for them. But it just kind of comes down to what you feel about the draft process overall. Like I've always been kind of partial to, okay, if you're a small market team and there's no way possible to really get that game-changing player outside of the draft, like it's a little bit of a blow for you. It's, it's a blow if you're the Knicks and you had to move down three or two spots. But I, that's what the league wants. So I actually go a different way on this. I actually don't think that flattening the odds in the way that the league flattened the odds is going to reduce tanking at all. Because like you said, you brought up the key point, I think. At the end of the day, guys like Zion Williamson, guys like, you know, past elite level players, they are so much more valuable than any other asset in the league. And in a sport where a singular player can so drastically change an organization, teams are always just going to strive for the best odds to go and get that player. And even at 14%, for a lot of these teams like New Orleans, like Memphis, uh, you know, teams outside of New York, Los Angeles, or Miami, or, you know, maybe even Chicago one day if they figure out how to run their shit. Like, that 14% chance, if you end up tanking, is still a better chance to get a game-changing star than anyone or any other uh, way to do it offers you. Additionally, part of the goal of tanking is to reduce like your level that you can fall, right? Like It's not just we want to maximize our odds to get number one. We want to minimize how far we can drop. Like The Knicks, they, they were always going to have a top five team or a top five pick in this draft. They're always going to end up at worst at five. That is valuable. That has inherent value in my opinion. And I just don't think that flattening the odds like this is going to change it because it still is incentivized to tank to even give yourself a 14% chance to get the best player. Yeah, that's a fascinating comment just because I think there's two different arguments here. Is like, are we going to dissuade these teams from doing this? I don't think so necessarily. I think a lot of teams are still going to be like, they're going to view it like you just said. We're still going to take the 14% chance of getting a game changer over, you know, winning a couple more games. You know what I mean? Like it's that that part I can see. It's more like the effect like, if you just look at the board tonight, did the NBA accomplish what they were trying to do? And I think the answer is yes, because you see these teams move up, you know, six spots, and it didn't call, it didn't come in the exact order that it was before. So I think for the grand effect that it accomplished what the NBA wanted in this specific sense, but I don't think it's going to cause teams not to pursue this avenue, if that makes sense. You're just not going to reward them the same. And I think that was the policy behind it. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. I just like, I think at the end of the day, it's probably not going to curb tanking. Like, you might not reward it, and I guess that theoretically, like, that might be your goal on some levels just to not reward it. But, like, at the end of the day, it just, like, kind of creates less parity. Like, I would prefer that the team who has the worst record just gets the number one pick every year because I want a league with more parity and with more uh, potential for teams from the bottom to rise to the top, right? Like, I, I, that's just what I want, but, like... I understand where the league's coming from. I just don't think it's going to be fixed. I, I totally agree with you. I don't think you can really completely fix tanking because teams are still going to be smart about this point. And it's like, it doesn't really matter if you don't have those game changers on your roster. You're just not going to make the kind of jump that every team in theory is trying to make, which is getting players who contribute to winning. The franchise guys are always going to be valuable. So will this new setting, the new odds, like completely diminish tanking? I don't think so, no. But I, I think that it at least accomplished tonight what it was designed to do and it gave these teams that wouldn't have had the same odds of moving up to one and two those odds and the teams that finished in directly the worst order in the league it didn't play out th that way on the page and i think that's what the nba is looking for yeah that's reasonable um well cole as you know i'm out on the road and there are a couple of things that you got to take when you're on the road. You got to take your toothbrush and you got to take your travel bag. Uh, today's two sponsors of the podcast are two things that are near and dear to my heart. It's Quip and it is Away Travel. Uh, look, it's time for spring cleaning. Quip's got an easy way to start. It's with your brushing habits for just two minutes twice a day. Uh, you can help pave the way to a healthier mouth and mind. And now the whole family can get refreshed with Quip. The new kids quip has a two minute timer and guiding pulses as our original version with no childish gimmicks. Uh, so they can brush like a grown up. Look, my experience with quip is fantastic. I brush my teeth more 
now that I have a Quip toothbrush. It has sensitive sonic vibrations for an effective clean that's gentle on your sensitive gums. It has built-in two-minute timer pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when you switch sides and uh, or when to switch sides and help you clean your mouth entirely. It has a multi-use cover that works as a stand. I can just pop that thing in my bag whenever I'm on the road. It doesn't get dirty. It's just very simple to just have on you basically at all times. And brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5. Quip is just the absolute best. I am seriously a huge fan. Uh, I'm going to go to bed after I'm done with this, but before I do, I'm going to use my Quip toothbrush to brush my teeth. Uh, And it's why they have over a million happy, healthy mouths uh, of customers that they have as well. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash theory, that's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash theory right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack for free at getquip.com slash theory. Again, seriously, guys. I am just a massive, massive fan of Quip, and I can't uh, even begin to emphasize enough how excited I am to share that love with you guys. Uh, our, our second sponsor is Away Travel. Uh, I don't think I have copy for Away Travel, so I'll just tell you about Away Travel. Uh, Away Travel uh, is a luggage company that... Uh, it serves carry-on bags. It serves uh, bigger carry-on suitcases, and it has just a lot of colors that you can get. You can get black, navy, green, asphalt, white, sand, blush, or brick. Uh, I actually have uh, just, I believe it's like a slate-colored one. And the reason that I'm a big fan of during my day on Sunday, where, uh, as I'll explain later in the podcast, I just had a hell of a day where I went to the wrong airport and just absolutely failed miserably throughout the entire day. One thing that saved me was that uh, Away Travel has a portable charger that is in the bag to help you uh, get to where you need to go once you get off of your plane. Uh, These bags are big, they're spacious. I have basically overfilled mine to the gills to where I have enough uh, clothes for six days uh, and it's only a carry-on, so you don't have to go and pick up your luggage afterward at the uh, baggage station. So uh, go to Away Travel. I guess I have an offer code somewhere. Uh, I'm not entirely sure where the copy is on this again, but I'm a huge Away Travel fan, and I would uh, hope that you guys uh, would go and go to Away Travel and buy things. I'll send along that offer code at some point online, though. So go to Away Travel uh, and... Uh, go help support the podcast. Thanks. All right. Where where do you want to bounce to at this stage? Like, I feel like uh, <laughs> my brain is just so shot right now. I keep saying that, but like, I can't emphasize it enough. Um, I don't know. Like, I, I have a question for you. Just like outside of the top three, because right now let's just assume, you know, Zion one, jaw two, RJ three. Is there like a specific fit of a player in a team in that like four to 10 to 12 range that really stands out for you is something that's both realistic and something you would like to see um, happen. Yes. I want Brandon Clark to go to Minnesota. Like it's a really good one. It's all I want in my life is Brandon Clark (laughs) just cleaning up for Carl Anthony Towns, mistakes and Carl Anthony Towns spacing the floor for Brandon Clark to just dive to the rim and be just the rim running freak that he can be. Um, that's probably the one that I like the most. I'm trying to think of a couple others, maybe. I think that in terms of getting a player in the best possible position for him to reach his ceiling, I would really like Cam Reddish to go to Atlanta. Like, I think that they would actualize and really make a lot of his skills work well with what they have on their roster currently and with their very insulated and uh, strong developmental culture. Like, I actually think that that would work really, really well. Yeah, I think that's definitely fair. And there's a possibility he drops to eight. I think that's probably his floor. And you can see the conducive skill set. I mean, they need a bigger wing who can shoot. I'm not like the biggest Reddish fan, but in that range, I don't think you're paying the same premium as you are in the top five, for example. So I'm... I'd be okay with that pick just because they do have the infrastructure to support him. You know, with Trey and Herter already in the backcourt, you can focus more on Reddish's floor spacing and kind of play him in that auto porter role rather than having him as any kind of, you know, ball handler, point guard type of player. I think that's where 
he has to be careful and finding a dangerous situation where they just expect too much out of him offensively. Well, the reason I like the Atlanta fit too is because you can have him play next to Trey and have him play the more limited role, as you just said. But when you take Trey off of the floor and like play him with like DeAndre Bembry or people like that, I think that you actually can give him the room to kind of operate and kind of, you know, develop his ball skills more, right? Because he does have them. They're not tight enough yet. And like, they're not quite there yet, but he is a fluid athlete. He's not an explosive athlete. He does have really good fluidity for a player his size. He's good body control for a player his size. Um, I think there are skills there. He needs to tighten up the handle, needs to uh, add some strength just on the ball generally and not get ripped. Uh by like hands poking into the lane and stuff. Like I actually think that there is a road to that working and the best possible place for it to develop would be in a low stakes environment where he's like handling the ball on like second units, you know? Yeah. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it that way. As far as if you think there's playmaking upside, not even like maybe even legitimately just because you don't need it in that sense. But I would put them in an environment like that where you're just not relying on him too much like Trey's always going to have the ball they run a lot of double high pick and roll you'd get reddish attacking more secondarily off closeouts utilizing his movement shooting if he continues to show progress in that area so I, I definitely like the fit with him on Atlanta more than a lot of these teams for sure is there another one that like really stands out to you like I have no idea what the Lakers are going to do if they actually keep this pick I would pick Culver I just think he plays off of like LeBron I mean if he shoots the ball that's the whole thing with Culver is like the shot has to be there a little bit of off the dribble shooting but if you play him where he can be more of a pure secondary and guys who can get him good shots like playing with LeBron and Lonzo I think he would do really well in that setting he does a lot of what they like to do defensively which is switch typically they like more switch defenders I think Culver's gonna be able to do that if he adds a requisite strength he gets a little bit more versatility so I, I like that fit it's not like super sexy but for what the Lakers are and how they're moving forward, their team. I think he gives them a dynamic they don't have right now. The really interesting fit there, the more that I think about it, like I mocked Culver to Los Angeles as well. I do really like that fit. I'm very interested in them potentially taking Darius Garland because you and I have talked about in the past how we would be very interested in putting a lead guard next to Lonzo Ball. Yep. And Darius Garland is the kind of lead guard that I've kind of, that I've envisioned in that role, right? The guy who has like just enormous range, not necessarily the world's best defender. So you can have Lonzo kind of take some pressure off of him there. Really good in ball screens, can create jump shots with ease, um, can actually just flat out create offense, right? Like I've always been just super, super interested in a guard like that next to Lonzo. Obviously, LeBron likes to play with multiple ball handlers on the floor. Um, there's the clutch connection, so I think he'd be pretty happy with getting another one of those guys in there. I do look at Darius Garland and say that would be a better fit than what it looks on the surface when you have Lonzo even as a point guard. Definitely merit to that. I, I agree with all your reasoning there. I think naturally you want someone a little bit more dynamic as a self-creator next to Lonzo because so Lonzo can kind of run the transition point guard and play more half court as like a secondary tertiary yep. ball handler hopefully the the shot comes around that's obviously the biggest part with Lonzo is can you just make a catch and shoot three with any kind of consistency if he does that then he's a pretty valuable player in my opinion but you definitely want something more dynamic on the ball so Garland makes some sense at least in theory I'm not totally sold on his ability to score at all three levels i think that the, the jump shot i'm definitely sold on his pull ability his range quickness of release playing off the ball he can play off lebron i think really well and kind of run yep. the spots in transition so there's some there's definitely some strong arguments to he's a good fit there schematically it more just comes down to you think he's the best player on the board uh what do you think his upside is it's more of a darius garland thing than it is a fit analysis because there's a lot of things that make sense on that roster yeah that's a good point that's a really good point um trying to think if there's anything else lottery wise so i i gave like kind of a fiery like stupid take a little bit like it's a res, it's a very <laughs> results over process take um which is something that on this podcast we don't really like to do but uh i wrote in my takeaways thing basically that if you look back at the sacramento philadelphia pick swap deal right the stauskas uh, Carl <laughs> Landry and Jason Thompson deal where the Sixers took on those guys and then got two pick swaps and this first round pick that is uh, now Boston's this year because they forwarded it along in the Markel Fultz deal. I think Philadelphia 
despite the fact that they did everything right in this scenario by accepting this deal. Like, there's no circumstance where they should not have accepted that deal. It was an absurd deal at the time. I remember where I was. That's a deal where it was so absurd. I remember exactly where I was. I was at a rooftop bar with Mike (laughs) Schmitz in Marina del Rey. And we both looked at each other like, what the fuck are the Kings doing? And like, I just don't even like know what to think of it now because if you look at what has become of that entire deal the 76ers are probably in a worse position now than if they had made that if they decided not to make that move and it's through things that are like mostly not their fault the whole Sixers ordeal is very complex just because a lot of it is revisionist history now especially the Fultz trade I mean at the time you have to put yourself in the position of where we were pre-draft and I think some people might have smartly identified that maybe there wasn't a huge gap between Fultz and the rest of the prospects but I think killing them for that trade is a little bit too hindsight bias and looking at the result when something like that hadn't really happened before we've talked about this on the podcast it just Sixers situation overall is just it's a complex one yeah like I'm not even killing them for it because again it was a totally rational decision like it's a move they should have made but the nba it goes back to luck it goes back to just being the most unpredictable ridiculous thing in the world because if they don't end up making this pick swap deal the picks don't swap so they end up at number five in the 2017 draft number five is De'Aaron fox maybe they don't take De'Aaron. maybe they take jonathan isaac larry markinen dennis smith regardless if it's De'Aaron, that's great if it's any of those guys, they help way more than whatever they got from Markel. And they're just able to maneuver around a lot better now. Um, they're just able to figure out a way to maybe get Tobias Harris for cheaper. Maybe keep Landry Shamit. Maybe it's, you know, there's just like all of these maybes. And basically all of the maybes are better situations than what they're in now, which isn't a bad situation. I mean, they just went to seven games in the second round like they I think people are kind of putting the cart before the horse and assuming that they need to like compete right now. But like, I guess that's the timeline they've set. Um, But like, they're just in a weird spot and I think it's a positive spot now. I just think it could be even more positive just looking back and being very revisionist on this. Yeah, absolutely. There's no question that things didn't break in ideal fashion for them. It helps when you have, you know, Embiid already on the roster. I love the Butler trade. I love the process. I love the result. I think that was a great trade. I'm a little bit more skeptical skeptical on Tobias. It doesn't have to be bad, but I'm not as gung-ho on that. It kind of depends on what happens this offseason with his contract and the surrounding circumstance. If you, if you lose Butler in, in order to sign Tobias, I like it a lot less. So there's more factors to be worked out. I think it is beneficial, though, to look at things, you know, in real time, not just in revisionist history. And no saying, question. Like, all these, all these moves look terrible now, but that's with the benefit of hindsight. And the draft is so much. I mean, obviously, we we both do this pretty much full time, and it's fucking hard, man. You, you throw that in with all the luck, staying healthy. It's it's really really hard to, to win in this league. Yeah, the lesson is just that like this league is fucking impossible. And being an NBA GM is so hard. It is such a hard job. Um, I don't know. We're like 40 minutes in or something like that. Maybe 35 minutes in. Do you want to talk about uh, the combine and all of the you know stuff that's going on out here in Chicago? Well, you're out in Chicago, right? Obviously. So if anything you're hearing, anything you want to talk about, I, I'm, I'm not there. I've just kind of been watching from... You know, thirty thousand foot view, all of this stuff. I haven't even watched the game tonight from the Warriors and the and the yeah, Blazers because I. I can't tra- I can't transition that quickly from like the lottery. I need to soak that in for like a few hours. I can't just transition right to playoff basketball. But uh, wherever you want to go with it, as far as the combine goes, anything you want to get off your chest? So yeah, the G League Elite Combine happened over the last two days. Got a chance to see a lot of really good players, in my opinion, uh, guys that I don't think would look out of place getting drafted by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I would say that my favorite guys that I saw were Terrence Davis was awesome. Uh, Jared Harper was really good. Daquan Jeffries was really, really good. I I would say that those were the clear top three guys. All three of those guys have been uh, invited, I believe, to the uh, NBA Draft Combine. They invited 10 guys, which was like the biggest shocker, uh, given the fact that I was told they were going to invite like between two and five to the NBA Draft Combine. Um, The guys that I also liked, I liked Terrence Mann. uh, I liked Justin Robinson and I liked Zylan Cheatham. Uh, I also thought Chris Clemens, like I'm not a Chris Clemens guy really, but I think that he performed well while he was here. None of those four guys got in to the NBA draft combine and uh, 
John Gavoni, who is, you know, fantastic at this, said, he talked to an NBA executive who said, we sandbagged all five of our votes. We already knew who we liked coming into this week. Why do we need to see these guys again and maybe give other teams who don't do their homework a chance to see how good they are? That makes no sense for us. A, 100% what I would do. If I was a G, like if I was an executive and you put me in charge of, you know, what guys that I think should be there, like Cody Martin is going through to the NBA combine and he was like, not very good this week, to be honest. Um, Zylan Cheatham is not going through the combine. I thought he was like very clearly one of the four or five best. Um, it was just kind of, it was, it's a very bizarre uh, situation here where we have NBA executives who have very differing incentives with all of this voting for players that like need to be seen by like as many teams as possible and as many executives as possible. So as to like give themselves a better chance at making a living, like it's, it's kind of crazy to me. And that's just another nice peek behind the curtain here. And it's not as simple as a lot of people think the whole process and, you know, pre-draft, all of that. There's different dynamics, different motivations at play. So it's, it's kind of interesting to hear that. In regard to guys that, and like reasons why uh, they stood out. So Terrence Davis just was an awesome athlete, looked like an NBA player out on the floor. Um, Jared Harper, I think he found the best uh, kind of balance between facilitation and trying to get his own. Daquan Jeffries just played within himself. Six, five, seven foot wingspan, good on defense, uh, knocked down shots on offense. Smart and composed. Terrence Mann is never out of position. Plays a smart, composed, uh, box score stuffing game. Uh, Justin Robinson, just a very high IQ point guard who gets shots all over the floor, was very good at Portsmouth as well. And then Zylan Cheatham uh, was just athletic and monstrous all over the floor. Uh, he, he was really, really good. Uh, imposed his will wherever he wanted on the floor. Didn't really shoot it well. Wasn't like a super efficient scorer or anything, but everything else he did do. Yeah, and all that, I mean, I, I didn't watch the events this week, obviously, but I've seen all of these guys in death by now. And yeah, all I mean, like, what, tracks, do you, so. what do you think of some of those guys? <laughs> yeah, I like Daquan Jeffries. I think he's he's not really a draft sleeper anymore just because all the outlets have been talking about him. He's gotten some legit coverage from the ESPN guys, but you watch him on tape and you see, we talked about what's an inefficiency in the draft and it's strength. A lot of it is just the frame, having that physicality, watching him switch and kind of protect the rim even from the weak side for Tulsa was interesting. I mean, offensively, he's more of a straight line guy. A lot of what they run are movement actions to get him getting going downhill, but you can kind of see what kind of systems would feature that. Like on the Nuggets, for example, you get to dribble handoff going downhill from Nikola Jokic. That's something that makes a lot of sense to me. And, you know, the shooting percentages are there. His form is good enough. I think it's not like incredible. You don't bank on him being like a movement shooter or anything, but if he can make a spot three, he can probably switch in the playoffs. And that's something that's uh, pretty valuable. And I think like Terrence Davis, I'm glad he stuck out in a setting like this, just because his transition speed is one of the best in the country. The athleticism stuff has always been there, but you get a better sense in person of his range, I'm guessing, and just how freaking fast he is. I, I like the fact he's getting some recognition. I think he's easily a second-round guy for me. Maybe not too high of a priority, but I think he's definitely a second-rounder in this class. I think there is some upside, even yeah. though I'm not usually crazy about gambling on like the smaller kind of combo guards. He's got a great frame and he's super physical. He plays bigger than his size, but I don't usually bet on like secondary handlers usually who are like six four, six five wing types. I usually like to go with the bigger player, but definitely some allure there. Justin Robinson, I definitely have as a second round guy. I just view him as a, a really, really good potential backup point guard in the regular season. I'm not sure if he can score well enough to really hang in the playoffs. We see that with a lot of these smarter players like Monte Morris, for example. Those guys don't hang quite as well when, when you go up levels. But I think you can still draft Justin Robinson and getting 48 minutes of good point guard play in the regular season is nothing to scoff at. So he's definitely someone that I think should be maybe not like a priority add in the second round, but I do feel yeah. pretty comfortably with him go- going in that range. Yeah, so... You know, the two highest rated guys I had coming into this week were Daquan Jeffries and Terrence Davis. Terrence Davis, hilariously, was not invited to this originally. Um, Benny Boatwright and someone else dropped out. I can't remember who else dropped out. Um, And Terrence was not invited. Again, you look at it as a scenario where teams are very clearly sandbagging votes uh, to get guys (laughs) either in or not into this event. Um, It's just crazy to me. Like Terrence Davis was really good. He was just very clearly so much more athletic in the way that he functionally uses athleticism on the floor. Um, I'm trying to think, is there anyone else? So some guys that like 
very negatively uh, stood out, I think are probably worth exploring. Uh, you and I have talked a little bit about liking Jalen Pickett. Jalen Pickett was really bad here. Um, was unfortunately bad because I, I like the idea of the kid. Um, I, I want him to be interesting and good. He really, really struggled. Ty's battle wasn't great. Um, I'm trying to think. Justin Wright Foreman really struggled in game one. He figured it out a little bit in game two. Uh, was just much more efficient in what he was doing. Trying to think who else. Uh, uh, Conate, Sags Conate for West Virginia. I think he took like 20 perimeter jumpers, it felt like, over oh, two God. games. Uh, that that was not that was not so hot. Um, trying to think if there's anyone else. Uh, man, I'm like pulling up a box score now. Um, <laughs> you know who I did like? I liked O'Shea Brissett, uh this yeah. week. So like O'Shea obviously has like just had the miserable two point percentages throughout his career. Part of it is that like Syracuse just has terrible spacing, and then additionally doesn't run anything to get like. You know, Brissett easy looks at the basket where he can like just catch and finish. Everything is he has to drive and he has to create for himself toward the basket. When he got a chance to actually like feed off of his teammates and get looks at the basket that they created for him, I thought he looked a lot better actually, like getting away from that scheme. Um, Dewan Hernandez, I thought looked pretty good. Used to be Dewan Hewell at Miami. Knocked down, uh, I want to say, two threes, actually, uh, over the course of the couple of games. And that was just not something he did at all at Miami. Uh, looked pretty athletic as well. Was fun. Taco Fall was fun as well. I would mention Taco Fall. Um, trying to think if there's anyone else. Andrew Nemhard struggled a little bit with the athleticism. He created a bunch of uh, like open shots for teammates that didn't fall. But uh, the athleticism translation, I think, was a bit of an issue. Trying to think if there's anyone else. I'll, I'll again note Chris Clemens. I, I thought Chris Clemens, like being five foot nine and, you know, not necessarily a defender and not necessarily a passer, his scoring game really translated, like so far. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm obviously familiar with his tape. Just really quickly about Jalen Pickett, what exactly about him? was lackluster like what did he struggle with the most i think that he's kind of a popular guy um on draft twitter especially and i'm just kind of curious for those guys what did you see with him that were the primary issues so first step was a serious issue he couldn't get by anyone um out here this week it led to a lot of really bad shots uh he pressed in game two for sure but like uh he took a lot of really really tough really really kind of uh contested shots and went like one for 11 the jump shot has like a very real hitch that he's going to have to adjust. Uh, he has to fix it or else it's going to be a real problem for him. Uh, I would say those are the three main issues right now, uh, particularly the jump shot. The jump shot did not look good at all here. It was like a significant two motion jumper that like just did not translate to beyond the NBA three point line. And you think pretty convincingly now that he's probably going to go back to school after this performance, especially right. I, I would hope. Yeah. Uh, I would hope. Yeah, I was just that's, curious. That's where I'll go. Yeah, I mean, when, <laughs> when I've when I've watched him, he's just he's too fucking slow, man. Like he just doesn't meet that threshold for me, athleticism wise. Like I don't yep. think any NBA team is going to have him initiate their offense. He's just not dynamic. Like even like a Caruso is way more athletic than him, and that's something that we have to look at with these prospects. Is I love the feel guys. You know, Jalen Pickett is really smart. He has kind of that old man's game, but you have to meet certain thresholds in the NBA. If you don't, then you're Probably not even a rotation guy. So I, I think that yeah. the athleticism concerns, the shiftiness, the lack of burst. I watched that one game against Cam Young, and I think Pickett got to the rim one time in that entire three overtime game, and it was off like a dribble handoff where he had a wide open lane. So I just think that NBA teams are going to look at that. If he didn't shoot the ball well, that's pretty damning for him just because he absolutely has to have that because he's not going to get to the rim at a high level. So it sounds like what he should do is come back and just kind of refine his shooting technique and, and whatnot. I think the best move for him would be to come back to school for sure. Cam Young, kind of a sneaky, sneaky underrated guy that I think should be at Summer League. <laughs> and I think someone should like make a priority to get him to their Summer League team. They might. They've got to watch that game, man. He had like what, like 50 points in that game? I can't remember. He did. He had a lot of good games this year for Quinnipiac. I was, uh, yep. he, he was like a guy that I got like clued onto when I did the college coaches poll thing. And they were like, yeah, take a look at him. He's like 6'5", can shoot a little bit. I was like, okay, long arms. Yeah. Yeah, he's got some intrigue. I'll say that. Um, NBA Draft Combine is Thursday. Uh, We'll talk about that at some other point. I'm excited for it. I think it's going to be 
pretty cool. I'm trying to think. Is there? Do you have any any strong draft takes you want to get off your chest now that you're watching uh, more and more tape? <laughs> not really. Not that I have any outlined. I mean, this is not like last year where I did have some pretty strong leans in the class. This year, it's I can't sit there and pretend like I'm going to know for sure if these guys right. are going to be good or not. I mean, there's just too many wild cards. But a team like, again, like Atlanta, I like Goga there. I I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but I love Goja. that center. That, Goja, okay. I love Goja there. As far as like a guy with Trey Young who can kind of, you know, run that dual double high pick and roll with him popping and Collins yeah. like, rolling to the rim. I think if they got like him, I don't know if like Brandon Clark is the kind of guy that the Hawks would draft just because of lack of shooting. But I, I love those two targets for them. So it's going to come down to, I think my draft take is just teams have to really get the intel out of these guys. And really, I think that's going to be the deciding point is the kind of information you get in these players. Who's going to really improve? Because right now, I don't think you look at the draft and say there's like super obvious guys that are going to be great. I think you have to bet on the rate of improvement a little bit here. So the intel and like how hard of workers are these guys, I think that's going to be really, really pertinent information, especially in this class. Okay. I have two things that I want to end on here. <laughs> so the first one, betting markets took so many bets on the New York Knicks to win the lottery that they had to move the line down to plus 350 to get them to stop taking bets or to stop like betting on the Knicks. <laughs> Betters were essentially taking like less than a half or like essentially what half of the odds were to get to bet on the New York Knicks to win the lottery. Like the implied odds should be like plus 614 or like plus 620 or something. And they were still betting it down to three plus 350. So essentially like six to one, they should have been six to one. People were betting on them at three and a half to one. Can you imagine just like literally Flushing money down the toilet, taking a dump, and then flush. Or, like, throwing money down the toilet, <laughs> taking a dump, and then flushing it like that. It's definitely a decision you can make, man. Uh, would not advise it. <laughs> okay, let, let's go with number two here. Game of Thrones. Uh, Cole and I are both big Game of Thrones fans. Uh, that is that is unfortunate. I have, to, uh, I have to throw some people some information on how I've watched the most recent Game of Thrones. So, on Sunday... I was flying out Chicago, obviously. I had a flight scheduled, like a, you know, nonstop flight to Chicago. I was supposed to land here at like 9.15. It was supposed to fly out of Burbank. I never fly out of Burbank in LA. So I had the Uber pick me up and take me to LAX. So I went to the wrong airport. And then because of that, had to switch my flight to a flight flying out of LAX. And then flying out of LAX, taking a stopover in Las Vegas for like three hours. So I watched it during a stopover in Las Vegas while I was <laughs> miserable because I'm a fucking moron. And that's how my uh, that's how my Game of Thrones viewing experience went. To be honest, I felt like it was a pretty good way to watch that episode because what a fucking trash fire that was. <laughs> I will say that's, this, uh, look. Extra Look, fuel to the fire. <laughs> like, Sapochnik, Miguel Sapochnik, the director of the episode, did an incredible job. Uh, that was one of the most visually stunning pieces of television I've ever seen in my life. The acting was all incredible. Maisie Williams, uh, you know, spoiler alert from now on, by the way. Uh, Maisie Williams, like, walking around the city and trying to save, like, women and children and then, like, continually getting seemingly blown up only to live and just be bloody. Uh, it was just incredible. It was such an incredible uh, scene. It was such an incredible acting experience. Uh, I thought that Lena Headey or uh, Lena Headley did a great, great job with Cersei. I thought that Nikolai Coster-Waldau did a great job. I thought that when Amelia Clark got to do any acting because you just stop seeing her after she decides to burn down the entire city. Like they stop showing her. She's just this faceless villain at that yeah. stage. Um, when she did like have to act in a moat to show that like she was essentially snapping, that was really good. Like she was incredible. I thought, and I look at the writing and I have never seen a show finish this poorly in terms of writing. It's just remarkably bad. 
I think you can just see the transition from now everything's about the end game and they're working kind of reverse engineering from there. It's about who sits on the throne and resolving the series rather than it is the character's decision making and like the fluid process that that takes. And I think a lot of people, when they watch shows like this, what are they most attached to? It's the characters. Like that's the case right. for me. Like I care the most is if the characters that you really invest time in, do they act in accordance with what you'd expect from them? And I think that's what made the first couple of seasons just so freaking awesome is because they did it naturally and it wasn't about just getting from a to b it was like the process is as important as the destination so obviously in the last two seasons they've had to expedite the process it's way too sped up they needed two more seasons to really get into all the finite details and make these moments seem like they're earned instead of now where it's just kind of rushed together it's like i get what they're doing but i, I don't agree with the process i think that they could have finish this series taking another two years three years if, if the showrunners now don't want to do it long term if they want to do something else and get somebody else in there that wants to like actually put the time in because the, the demand is there i mean now people are just pissed off because it didn't end the way they wanted it to television is a writer's medium and the reason for that is because of the fact that it goes on for year after year after year and you do form such a connection with the characters. If you do wrong by the characters, you do wrong by the television show. There are reasons why like TV shows like The Practice, for instance, where it rarely leaves the courtroom even, or House, or you know X, Y, and Z procedural can run for as long as they do, despite the fact that they aren't these visually arresting tv shows it's because when you care when you like write about something for so long and you watch something for so long you form the attachment to the people that you're viewing and it's different in movies other than like the marvel series for instance i think um i would call the marvel series a writer's medium essentially and i would say that it is i would say the head writer is basically uh kevin feige uh, to be honest, uh, the guy who like essentially runs Marvel Studios and like kind of holds everything together by the connective tissue. Um, but like movies, you're spending two hours with people. You have to get very convoluted, sometimes difficult ideas across in split seconds. And that's why acting in movies, I think, is incredibly, incredibly difficult um, and why movie actors I think in my opinion, at least tend to make a little bit more money than what television actors do for the amount of like hours that they put into something. So it's just, you can't totally fuck over the characters like game of Thrones has and not expect there to be frustration and disappointment. Um, and it goes back to, I think like there are just a lot of better ways to handle it. Um, very clearly, they talked to George R. R. Martin about the way that George is going to finish the series, and um, it certainly has, you know, always seemed like like I'm so I'm like basically two books into the series right now. Have you read the books, Cole? I'm only a little bit into the second one, so I'm in the process of that. So, like, you can see in the books where like the Mad Queen is going, right? Yes. Like, you can see that that is being foreshadowed. You can say that in the show there are moments where it is foreshadowed that. Daenerys is going to become a mad queen. The problem is a lot of those moments can be justified by logical realities of her actions. And they can also be kind of hand waved because very clearly in the like TV show, she is not someone that will just like commit genocide on a city of thousands upon thousands of people because as one of the creators said she saw the red keep and snapped like that's just not the way her character goes and i think their explanations of some of these events has actually detracted even more from the experience for me like i would rather it's made it worse. leave it open-ended it's made it like she forgot about the fucking iron fleet in the fourth, ep fourth episodes like they just talked about the iron fleet in like the meeting room and that's like the one thing she has now is just the claim right. to the throne. You think she's going to forget about Euron when she's flying through the air? So I think some of the explanations have honestly just made it a lot worse. And I, I think people will debate the Danny arc. I think some of this was realizable, but it's still a hard sell to really make it feel earned in such a small amount of time. 
that's passed as far as especially recently with Masande dying and all of that. I think a more realistic avenue for Danny in that moment would have just been literally burning the Red Keep and not all the fucking city. Like, she still would have killed innocent people doing that, and that would be tragic, but... To put it on a grand scale where she just starts like mass murdering people, I, I just don't know if there was enough time really allocated towards making that a deserved moment for that character. And the problem with that is that they made this decision to do 13 episodes in seasons 7 and 8 when HBO has already come out and said like, yeah, we wanted to do more and the creators didn't want to do it. That was an incredibly poor decision. That was just it's really I mean, tough flat out the wrong decision and from there they had to like make a call how do i do this i mean like the way that i would have done this if i was running the show i would have essentially had and i guess that you can't do this because george has to be involved and like it's very clear that george wanted to lead to like danny being like the main villain but like if i was going to do this in like such a shortened time frame i almost would have flipped it i would have had danny essentially come over at the end of season six when she's on that boat and attack King's Landing immediately, basically, and then have like the next what, like twelve episodes, basically, to run through whether or not John and Danny are going to be um, like ha- how their uh, family situation is going to work, and whether or not John is going to get the Iron Throne, whether or not um, he's going to have to like take it from Danny or whatever, and start dealing with the emotions behind that. And then while that's happening, have the Night King rise up, and basically it has to like then turn into does Danny actually go and help the Night King or help them with the Night King while she's on the throne already? And still like trying to figure things out. Um, And they're still trying to like figure out, is she good or bad? Uh, Like this is to me, that's like a lot more of a interesting story because the decisions that have to be made there are a lot more difficult for the characters involved. And they're more realistic. Like look at how easily she just took King's Landing. She could have done that right when she crossed the damn ocean. That's my, that's my big problem. That's why I initially thought of that. Yeah. Well, the entire last two seasons has been all about trying to equal the odds between Cersei and Danny, and that's the way the showrunners thought about it. It's like, okay, we have Danny with this massive following, we have to knock her down. So you get that stupid ass plan to go north and bring a white to Cersei, even though how many times do we have to see Cersei like not be reasonable for people to expect that? You know what I mean? So you just get filler episodes to try to build to this ultimate point. Like right now, Danny had to do something just so ridiculous that it would absolutely turn John against her. I think that John's gonna kill Danny in the next episode. And I think that that is what the their process was it's like we need to get to this b point in such a short amount of time we have to do things that would just lead us there rather than do things that make sense within the construct of the characters yeah no 100 percent agree um i thought it was weird how they put like uh aria with a pale horse too because isn't that like the uh uh isn't that like revelations right like with the pale horse uh and then like uh isn't like death riding a pale horse so like basically yeah, Arya really is like the incarnation of death. Um that's not that's not really like it's, <laughs> it's just like a a it's so on the nose but b it also like does kind of display like a very fundamental like misunderstanding of things as well within the characters that they've written. So like that even like that scene annoyed me to an extent. I was very frustrated. Um and I'll see I will say, like, with Jamie or something, like, I'm not Like, some people are really pissed off about this. I'm not, actually. Like, I'm. this is where I'm pissed is just the pacing. Like, how fast it was, it didn't make as much sense. If they would have done this over, like, like five or six episodes, like, he doesn't just sleep with Bran and then ride right back to Cersei, I think it would look better as far as the delivery. I, I think that this decision to go back to Cersei, though, is within his character it doesn't mean like it's not like he's a bad person for doing it you know what i mean people deal too much in categorizing things as good and evil and the whole point of jamie is like he's a gray area character like he's gonna do some things that you don't agree with but he's acting in what he believes so i think like going back to cersei that was a it was a sellable point they just couldn't sell it in that amount of time it came off as not earned either because you you have this interaction and then right away he just rides back but if that happens six episodes later and there's a process and you get to really feel the weight of the decision i think people come out of that differently so i actually agree with that for the most part like i, I would have the problem that i had with it is the way that they died um 
you just can't have them killed by rubble. I hope that they're not dead, honestly. Like, I hope that, like, there is, like, a small scene, like, at the beginning of the next episode. <laughs> and, like, Arya has to, like, stab her, like, quickly, right? Like, that, that'd that be interesting yeah, to me. That was that was always tough for me because then I think a lot of people would have responded. So Arya killed the Night King and Cersei. Like, that's some, like, next-level badass shit. Like, are we going to give her... People are already pissed that Jon didn't kill the Night King. So we're going to give Arya both of those kills now, too. I don't know. There's just... There's a lot of things that people would have argued about when it came to this just because they kind of backed themselves in the corner on how they were going to deliver it. And that's just the shame for me is, like, I'm still enjoying the spectacle of the show. Like, you said, the acting... It's, like, my second favorite thing in the world outside of basketball. It's probably Game of Thrones. So I'm still enjoying the positives in it. But you, you still can't ignore the negative negatives and like the opportunity cost of they had the means they had the acting they had everything to really arguably make the best show of all time they had the source material and the last two seasons they they just fell short man it just kind of sucks to see yeah they failed uh cole tell the people what's going on tell the people where they can find your work yeah so at the com, i am in the process of writing this very long piece on like pull-up shooting for the lead guards in this class or the combo guards and kind of looking at the functionality we talk about you know, how it translates to the floor as far as release point. Can these guys execute in the mid-range? And I kind of compare them to some of the best shooting league guards in the game today, like Damian Lillard, some of his college tape. Uh, a little bit of Kyrie Irving there, too. So be on the lookout for that. Also just wrote a piece about a decision that Grant Williams made, I believe, against Florida. There's a skip pass late in the game, and I kind of just went back and pulled different situations that he was faced in. And it was kind of interesting because he faced, like, the exact same defensive set about two possessions before that. And I was looking at, like, did he know where the coverage was coming from? Did he make, like, this really highly instinctive read and kind of going back and forth? But it's just kind of a play on Grant Williams's intellect, and that builds back into the podcast we just did, which we had a debate about Rui versus Grant Williams, so you can check that out on the podcast. And speaking of the podcast, lastly, continue to listen to this podcast. All right, I got to go to bed. Uh, that's, that's about <laughs> all I got, man. Um, yeah, just go subscribe to The Athletic. I have a new mock draft up. I have a um, takeaways post from the lottery up. I have something coming on Zion Williamson for Wednesday. Just go read it all, man. I'm tired. Uh, I'm going to sleep. Uh, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye.